Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and, most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Steve Ty is the director of Chasing Sunrises, a strategic foresight agency that specialises in designing longer-term strategies for organisations. He is also a public speaker on the topic of the future, strategy and innovation. Steve is the former foresight manager at Global Brewer Fosters. He has completed the Oxford Scenarios program at Oxford University and has a Master's in Strategic Foresight from Swinburne University, where he graduated in 2007. He specialises in using scenario planning to help clients anticipate different plausible futures and design innovative strategies in response. Steve's first book on creating organisational foresight is called Rethinking Strategy, How to Anticipate the Future, Slow Down Change and Improve Decision Making. It will be published in April 2019. Welcome to FuturePod, Steve. Thanks very much, Peter. Great to have you here. Steve, question one is we encourage people to just think back and tell the story of how they got into the field, the journey in, people that supported you, that kind of thing. Sure. Well, look, it's a story I really like to, um, to tell. It goes back to my time at Foster's and... Um, uh, that was the only job I ever had. Started there in 1995, and for the first uh, eight years in that um, in that organisation, my primary role was around uh, market analysis. And um, so we're an organisation, and we're spending millions of dollars per year on market data. And uh, I was one of the, the people there working in, in market research, that you know, crunching through those numbers each month and, and crunching them to the minutest detail. Uh, after a while, you know, I worked my way up and I, I was uh, the chief analyst, if you like, uh, supporting the, the vice president of sales and marketing and so forth. And I got to uh, the position where I was in, in uh, Consumer Insights and I was working closely with the marketing team and I could see the reliance, the dependence, if you like, on trends that marketers had and you know I make the point that uh, marketers love trends okay so it's like the, the, the trend almost scopes out the domain uh, so they, the trend itself almost does the hard work you know trends are a double-edged sword if you like because a, a trend essentially is a sustained uh, change in preferences or behaviors okay so if you don't adapt you're in a lot of trouble on the flip side the very notion of a trend is that it's identifiable, and therefore, if we could, um, if we were innovating to the latest trend, then you could be absolutely sure that every other organisation that we're competing with has got exactly the same uh, range of trends in front of their marketing team. So there's really no competitive advantage. Uh, I was a very competitive person, 
uh, obviously we're a competitive organisation. And so the question uh, that I asked myself in December 2003 was, how do you get ahead of trends? I mean, that question has led me here today. Without it, That's the question that defined the direction of my life without a shadow of a doubt. And, uh, you know, is it even possible to get ahead of trends? Okay. As simple as it was, uh, I googled the word foresight. Uh, lo and behold, there's an institute just down the road teaching uh, a Masters of Strategic Foresight, an Australian Foresight Institute. Now, there's probably fewer than five of those in the world, and one of them is four kilometres down the road. Yeah, in- incredible luck. And so uh, myself uh, and a colleague, uh, Bettina Freshney, uh, in 2004, we started the course. And I guess prior to, I, I actually met with Richard Slaughter. Okay, and I'll, I'll tell you this story just to express my, uh, I'll give you an indication of my naivety and what I was seeking. And I asked him, there, there was a cafe just around the corner um, from the university, and I met with him, and I said, if I do this course, will I be able to predict, uh, predict the future? <laughs> and so he probably thought to himself, well, how did this guy get through uh, Peter and Joe? But, so, you know, that's what I'm seeking at, at that time. And, and um, you know, it, it's funny because we, we, we laugh at it now, but that... Uh, perception, that connection between the future, foresight and prediction is so, so strong. Mm. Um, out there. And a lot of people make money based on that kind of premise. But anyway, away from that. So I met with um, Richard in December 2003. March 2004, we started the course. Uh, instantly, uh, I, I connected with uh, the value that it could offer to an organisation. So I could see that link. I had a very good relationship with the CEO I uh, wrote a job description, I sent it up to him. I proposed that we should have an environmental scanning manager. Uh, the choice of word there was really deliberate because I tried to get away from uh, foresight because of that kind of association with uh, crystal ball gazing or what have you. And um, So I proposed uh, an environmental scanning manager and uh, he said, no, 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 that that's no good. It's a foresight manager and you're it, okay? I, I'd only been studying eight weeks and now I'm a foresight manager. So that's, that's good and bad. And I, I remember, so on, I started in June 2004, so I've been studying for three months. And I just remember that feeling of being completely overwhelmed as I sat at my desk, nine o'clock day, on day one, people are all around me moving purposefully in their roles, and here I am kind of charged with, well, what does the next 10 years look like? How might people's behaviours, their values, wants and needs change or evolve? And what might that mean for us as a beverage company? So pretty broad questions. And uh, I just remember so clearly that feeling of being overwhelmed Mm. by this vast black hole Mm. of anything could happen. Yeah. And so what's the trap? You know, without a framework, if you like, which I, I didn't have at the time, you fall for everything. And, and you think your role uh, involves the collation of everything or you have this um, feeling that I need to know everything. And so, you know, that, and I'll talk about some challenges later, but I think that was one of the challenges I need to overcome. So th- that was really, I, I became the foresight manager in June 2004, very much without much of a clue in terms of what I really had to deliver or how I was going to deliver it. Okay, so it was very much uh, learning on the run. 
yeah, that, that, that was really it. And I, I must say that I think if I reflect on myself in those early days, I was such uh, a corporate-minded person. I was very much in this corporate uh, culture and a fosters culture. And I, I think... I don't think I brought the proper mindset that I needed to class in those in those uh, first couple of years. But then again, how, how could you have known that? I mean, the point is you can only bring the mindset you have, mm. and that's a mindset that had been successful to get you where you were. So yeah. it was an appropriate mindset. Yeah, well, I suppose so. But uh, anyway, just on reflection, that's one of the things that, that I do note. Yeah, and so in terms of... Um, so here I am, you know, needing someone to help me row, I uh, I worked closely with uh, Marcus Barber for a couple of years there, and I found him he was very helpful in helping me to understand concepts like environmental scanning and scenarios and how they could be applied uh, within organisations. In terms of um, other people who who I found very helpful at the time, a, a guy called Richard Borden, who you obviously know, he, he wrote this this little workbook called Learning from the Future, and mm. it, it's readily available um, out there. And I found that one of the, one of the key documents in my early development in terms of how to design, you know, scenario processes and so forth. So uh, they were kind of two of the people that played a a role for me or a, a mentoring role, if you like, in those early days. And I, I must admit, in terms of who my aspiration was, being within a a corporation, I obviously fell for the whole myth of shell, mm. and. Um, and, and there, I think there is a lot of mythology around hmm. Shell, uh, to be fair. But I certainly fell for that. I read as much as I could by the Shell alumni, if you like. And and certainly the the key inspiration for me there was someone like um, you know Pierre Bach, who's mm-hmm. obviously very well known within yeah, the scenario too. Um... Yeah, and 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 I, I guess you know the other starting point there, as it is for most people, is um, you know Peter Schwartz's book, The yes. Art of the Long, Long View. View. Certainly, Bach and, and his writings from um, the early 80s in Harvard Business Review and so forth, I, I find now that they still stand the test of time. He, he, he's, he was so clear and he could articulate it so well. He was, I found he was so far ahead of his time. And, yeah. and then um, I left Foster's in, uh, um, at, the start of 90, sorry, at the start of 2007 and I was lucky enough to spend um, a week at Oxford and where they have the, um, uh, the Pierre Varc Library. And I, uh, after the uh, one-week scenario program finished, I spent two days in that library just yep. immersing myself in it. So I was very much, uh, I guess, aspiring to know what those fellows knew and to have the impact that, that they did. Because I always saw myself as an organisational uh, futurist, if you, if you like, from day one. That, that's what really drove me. Thanks, Dave. Steve, second question is we ask our guests to talk about a favourite method or a favourite framework. I think you want to talk about a couple. Yeah, I will. There are a couple that featured really strongly. You were certainly there early on when you saw my infatuation with viral dynamics. Uh, for me, it, it, it just unlocked this kind of understanding in terms of uh, what has happened, what is happening and what could happen. I loved it, and I, I was lucky enough. I got put through the Chris Cowan course twice with when I was with Foster's. In fact, the second time 
I convinced them. We've got 15 of us got put through the through the one week course, uh, which was great. And, and Spiral was interesting because it it just kind of made sense in terms of you know the way we think being influenced by the, the context in, in which we're working and so forth. That was probably the first method from my studies that, that I, I really gravitated towards. In fact, that then influenced my uh, work with scenarios because I started to rely too much on values when I was doing scenarios. Okay, so I had to kind of extract myself uh, from that situation. But from spiral dynamics in those early, early years, the one, my one calling, I think, has been scenarios. And I started doing scenarios in 2005. We looked at the, the, the future of the beer market, which was an obvious choice uh, when I was at Foster's. I've essentially spent the last 12 years trying to learn more and trying to tweak uh, my craft with uh, scenarios over that time period. And it's something where I think it's, it's a never-ending quest, and I think that's the journey that I'm on. And I like that journey because, again, it's that competitive. I really like you know, improving, adding my own tweaks to, to what are pretty well-established methods. Uh, that's probably my, my calling, if you like. And it's, it's been an interesting journey. I remember the, the first time I was exposed to them and I was very, very disappointed. And again, because I'm coming from a background of data and tables and graphs, okay, and, and facts about the future. That's my background. When I was first exposed to scenarios, the whole process just appeared to me to be too loose. It was almost like, well, what value can come out of this? It's just, it's just people talking, um, sitting around talking and saying, well, this could happen or this could happen. Then I thought, well, I might just uh, introduce my own little innovation here. And I tried to make it almost regimented, where you almost had to uh, look at every factor that could happen and, and how that might influence every other factor. And I remember you know, one of the questions that we had in one of our scenario project, projects was to consider what might be the future of Steiner schools in this world. You know, this was the minute detail that I wanted to know the, the future of. And so you could see that I still hadn't extracted myself from my analytical past, mm. if you like. And the but predictive again, nature, the predictive nature of this causing this. Absolutely. Yeah. And the search for the right answer. Yeah. That was the key. So I, I, that's where I'm coming from. And, and, you know, that's just part of the journey. And I think, again, one of the, the keys to um, being an effective uh, scenario planner, effective futurist, whatever you want to term, is getting past being right Okay, and, and really focusing on making an impact, I think. But um, I thought they were too loose. Then I tried to be too... So I've gone the other way and almost killed the creative and enjoying, enjoyable process that it should be. I mean, that's one of its actual strengths, is that creativity and the, and the, the enjoyment that people have from participating in the process. So anyway, I did my best to kill that. So, but we move on. And then um, to, to where I am today, where I pretty much... I, I try to um, you know, do a major project at least once a year with scenarios. And I think one of the things I've really focused on over the past couple of years, and I think one of the things that's overlooked in the literature, if you like, is the importance of the f scenario workshop and facilitation. So what actually happens? So not the process necessarily, but uh, what happens. And, and I think one of the things that should drive your work in scenarios is is to accept that people in the room uh, tend to be a bit uncertain about the future they might be a bit skeptical about the future 
most of them have never done work with scenarios before. And I make the point, you know, most people haven't thought about what they're doing on the weekend. So when you're confronting them with it with a 10-year horizon or whatever that may be, you should never underestimate that feeling of anxiety that perhaps exists. So one of the the things that I've tried to, to work on there is putting people at ease and more importantly, bringing everyone along because nothing causes a workshop to fail more than perhaps when um, people start to feel left behind and they say, you know, I don't get this. And then all of a sudden they drop off the participation mm. radar, if you like, and, and nothing is more disheartening. So how do you put people at ease and how do you bring people along inside a workshop, which has got its own time pressures? And... It can, yeah. I think one there's a couple of aspects here. One, the theme I use is structure and stimulation. The structure in terms of every process has to logically lead to the next. Right. And stimulation is that the, the output of the preceding activity should be the input into the next activity. So you, you kind of get this logical flow. Yeah. And I think if you pace it correctly and you use creativity in, in your processes, then all of a sudden light bulbs go off and the noise level raises because people start to think, okay, I know why we're doing this and I know where we're heading. I can start to see where things fit. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things, it goes back to the very first thought I had sitting at my desk when I um, started at Foster's as a foresight manager, you've got to give people a framework to break down this complexity. And so I think that structure and stimulation is the key uh, to a workshop. And I also wouldn't underestimate the priming activities prior to a workshop, that to put people at ease in terms of the expectations, uh, the, the purpose and the outcomes and, and, and so forth. So I think, um, yeah, as I said, structure and stimulation is the key, but I, I would never underestimate the importance of bringing everyone along in a, in a workshop setting. It, it's it, it's almost guaranteed to get you successful outcomes further down the track. Mm. And in in terms of structure, I mean, at a high level, can you sort of just uh, describe to the listeners around you know? So, what are the major structural elements that you would say you're including? in the scenario process. Yeah, look, I don't think they're anything you know, new as such. It's really about just breaking it down. I think you know, getting people to think about the factors that could influence their decision or you know, the, the, the focus of the scenarios prior to coming to the workshop. So giving them the pre-work that gets them thinking about the future, but not getting them to think about it in a homework sense, getting them to think about it in a way that's enjoyable and that they can't wait to share the outcomes or their findings with their fellow colleagues. I mean, that's the whole key. It's, I think one of the problems with um, environmental scanning that leads into a scenario workshop is that it can be too dry and it can be too dense. Whereas I think the purpose of the scanning is really just to, to stimulate people's thinking. And so how do you make that as, as creative as possible? Because ultimately your, your purpose with an environmental scan is to get it read and to get it used. And uh, so how do you make that a creative, enjoyable process? And, and so, you know, I'll, look, I'll, I'll openly say this is my process. So I, I'd start with people on day one sharing what was in their particular environmental scan. So with an environmental scan, for example, let's say it was a workshop of 20 people, I, I might find 60 pieces of information. Let's call it 60 articles, right? Short, sharp articles. And I might allocate three per person. And I, I might get you to work in groups and share your three with your five colleagues, if you like, and they share theirs with you. 
and and why I think this is important and how it's relevant to the decision that we're trying to. And to me, so they're not even thinking about the future really. No. It's all in front of them. You know, I read this article and I think this could mean this. You're giving them a chance to sound like they're experts because they are in, in regards to those two or three articles. They're the expert in the room. So go back to stimulation and structure. You know what this is? This is the um, full toss or half volley outside off stump. Hmm. Okay? It's the loosening up exercise. And, and so you're warming people into the act of thinking about the future. Okay. And they can do it. Absolutely. And they can do it well. And this goes to the heart of bringing everyone along. So once you've kind of gone through the environmental scan, we've, limbi- we've mentally limbered up, if you like. Okay, what other factors now you know, do we think could influence this? And one of the key things I've found, you've got, it's much easier and I think more effective to have people working in teams of, say, between no less than four and probably no more than seven, if you like. And I like to, to break it down and they, they work... With it on particular scenarios each, if you like, because therefore everyone gets a say and and can can share their thoughts and so forth. But yeah, so you really move from say an environmental scan, which is as I said limbering up, into now you know what factors do we do we think are important. But again, I would have allocated that as pre-work, so that people have thought about it and they might say, okay, well these are the the factors that I thought of, and then people around the table may contribute to well yeah I, I see how that could influence etc and move move around so again they're talking about stuff that they've already thought about so you're halfway through day one and everyone's still with you and as i said i think bringing people along is absolutely key yeah you know, after you've gone through that process then you just go through that isolating okay what do we think really matters etc and you know i think one of the stumbling blocks for me as a uh, as a facilitator, you know, ten years ago, was the whole phrase because you you tend to judge factors based on in, potential to impact and how uncertain that factor is. And when you hear the word uncertain coming from my background, it almost means how probable is it, not the uncertainty in terms of how it will develop. So there's a lot of I think that phrase how uncertain is a factor. It can be quite confusing for people who are new to the process. So again, it's it's how you explain that I think to to make sure everyone comes along. So uh, I think um, yeah. So if you just have that logical flow, and and this is where I think the the real skill of a facilitator is is to how do you design each process? The processes themselves don't vary too much, but how do you design it with that in mind of bringing everyone along? And maintaining those energy levels, okay, and that's where your individual creativity comes into it, because as you you, um, you alluded to um, before, is that um, everyone's read the steps to creating scenarios, okay, but it's not until you get in front of an audience that you realise you can no longer rely on Peter. Peter Swartz isn't in the room, unfortunately, and that can be a very scary moment. But I think the exciting thing is, is you take those steps as as a framework, if you like, but then. How do you put your own tweaks on that to to bring people along with you? Thanks, Steve. Steve, third question is the one where we ask people to talk about how they, just as a human being, as a as a member of the world, see the future emerging. Um, you know, you've got a young child. I mean, you can choose a context for, for how you 
make sense of the world and see the future emerging? Well, to, to think about the long-term future, and I really like uh, thinking about like patterns of change and, and, and your pendulum theory, which um, I think Saka and, and, and Sahail have, have spoken about and so forth. So they're kind of the methods that I, I uh, rely on when it comes to thinking about uh, the longer-term future. I think you know, we, we've gone through this period of um, uh, you know, rampant uh, materialism and kind of the natural kind of um, swing of the pendulum is, uh, pendulum is towards perhaps more um, post-materialistic values and behaviours and so forth. And I think we're seeing that. And I think we're seeing that in the uh, where we are right now, you know, the, the emphasis on creativity uh, in, in a library uh, such as where we're located. But I think that, that, that swing towards post-materialism is something uh, that is emerging. And I think over the next 30 years, that swing will have as much influence, if you like, as the as materialism has had on the previous 30 years uh, you know the swing towards collaboration and these are all themes now that are becoming more and more uh, commonplace so collaboration as opposed to competition uh, creativity as opposed to uh, consumption uh, access as opposed to ownership etc etc and um, uh, to me it's it's a natural consequence of uh, that will be forced upon us because of um, Growing population, emerging power, you know, limited resources, etc., will call upon the fact that the behaviours that have been dominant in the past can no longer necessarily persist. Therefore, they need to be toned down. Different behaviours need to be turned up, if you like, and and so you know, sustainability become much more commonplace. Even though it's it's well established now, it will only continue to to be a part of our thinking and, and our behaviours. So, to me, that that's probably the big social shift, and I think that's really exciting, and I, I think it's a shift that many industries and organisations um, are, are really struggling with. A lot of them still don't understand it because values and worldviews tend to be kind of an overlooked component of, of people's strategic planning. So I think those industries that have had their moment in the sun. So if you think about, if you're in the industry of um, advertising or manufacturing or, or retail, so making or selling stuff, the last 30 years has been the equivalent of, you know, you've, you've kicked with the wind for 30 years. Mm. And um, so that's terrific. But I think as that pendulum switches, um, and perhaps we move from an emphasis on individualism to um, yeah, more community values, placing great emphasis on, on belonging and so forth. And, they, and they, you know, again, with pendulum theory, these are natural kind of antidotes to growing uh, mental illness, uh, resource degradation, loneliness as an epidemic, it's set, shortening attention spans, whatever it may be, you know, that will force the pendulum back. And, and to me, so that's an optimistic future, if you like, in terms of community belonging. So whose moment in the sun is that then? You know, events or organisations or places that can bring people together, you know, their moment in the sun is, is perhaps coming again. And to, to me, that's exciting as um, as someone who likes being part of a small community uh, where I live and also as someone who who has a young child because I, I think that's the type of world or type of place that, that would be a great thing to be a part of. So to, to me, that would be exciting. So. Okay. Thanks, Dad. Steve, question four, the old uh, taxi driver conversation. How do you explain what you do to someone who necessarily doesn't know what you do? Well, 
it's a um, that's an easy question to ask, and it's a bloody hard question to answer, I reckon. And I think anyone who works in this field you know, wrestles with well, what is the most articulate answer for this. So, uh, and I know I, I struggled with it, but I, I say now I help organisations design strategies. Okay, because most people can kind of understand what strategy is and, and the need to have a strategy and so forth. So uh, I guess the point of difference I have uh, with scenarios is uh, at the centrepiece of that strategic design is understanding how the future could unfold in different directions and then using that understanding as your um, basis for designing strategy. But to be honest, I would probably just restrict my quote, if you like to, I design strategies uh, for organisations. Um, in terms of the word foresight, again, that, that's an interesting word. And I think a lot of, as I said, a lot of people kind of interpret that in, the, in a predictive sense. But the best definition I've read is, you know, Jonas Salk said, uh, wisdom is the capacity to make retrospective judgments prospectively. And I think if you paraphrase that, get rid of the word wisdom. I think, well, to me, that's what foresight is. Foresight is the capacity to make retrospective judgments prospectively. And I think, yeah, and it's very common. So you've got Jonas uh, Salk saying that. And what, what's Peter Schwartz's definition for scenario success? You know, did you make better decisions? Yeah. So it all comes down to judgments, decisions, and so forth. So, and I think that's, I think ultimately that's what you're in the business of doing when you are a, a designer of strategies. You're in the business of, of helping people make better decisions. Uh, you know, as dry as that kind of may sound, if you yeah. like. Thanks, Dave. Steve, tell us about the book. Uh, the book that you said I would never write, Peter? Is that That's the one? The one? No. That's the one. Um, well, I um, have uh, written a book, which is um, called Rethinking Strategy, and um, it's being published in um, uh, late May 2019, which is great. And obviously, um, it's, it's being published by Wiley, which as someone who, who uh, looked up to the Shell alumni and, and so forth, I... I, I always kind of aspire to be published by Wiley. So that was a bit of a, a goal for me. But um, yeah, so look, that's been a really interesting um, uh, exercise of writing. I'll talk a little bit about the book in a minute, but just the, the process of writing, I enjoyed. I, I found myself, you know, almost a, a bipolar attitude in terms of this is going to be the, this is going to outsell the Bible on one step. And then the next paragraph, you think this is the, the worst book of all time. And so you, I think as a writer, uh, I found that you just go through these periods of, of peaks and troughs so many times during during the day, and I found it was, it was always important uh, to end on a high. So look, I really in, enjoyed the challenging thing. I enjoyed the sometimes getting stuck on ideas and, and, and going for a walk along the beach or going for a run and, and, and getting that clarity. Because uh, that, that moment of clarity, you know, that new insight is something, whether I'm in a workshop or whether I'm writing that really drives me, you know, a new way of seeing things type thing. Um, yeah, so I enjoyed it. So the, the book's called Rethinking Strategy. Okay, so what's the book about? Essentially, it's about how do you embed a foresight capacity within your organisation? So it goes back to the boy, the man in 2004 who's just been appointed as foresight manager, sits at his desk and he asks himself, where do I start? 
So I know it can be a bit of a cliche, but I've written the book that I needed on that morning. And how I've written the book, so it's about how to embed foresight in an organisation. I've written it using a personal storytelling technique. It's in three parts. One is searching. That is searching for a superior technique to help guide the organisation forward, which goes back to the first question I said, how do you get ahead of trends? So when I, in the chapter one, searching, it's about understanding the limitations of trends and acknowledging that there must be a better way to think about, to plan for, to innovate for the future. Part two then goes on learning because clearly I know the current techniques weren't up to scratch, but I didn't know any difference. So part two is about uh, learning and that's my techniques for um, anticipating and identifying uh, issues and opportunities, you know, understanding the, the bell curve of change, if you like, understanding where strategy fits, or sorry, where foresight fits within the strategy process. You know, that's a really interesting point there in terms of, well, where does foresight fit within strategy? Because if you look at how most definitions for strategy are pretty much about a plan to get from here to there. But the fundamental question is, where is there? Does there even exist? The missing element in planning is the future. It's the most overlooked component. So, you know, one of the, the, the first points of call is to recognize well, where does the future fit within strategic planning and within innovation? That's your starting point because one of the reasons scenarios have failed to have a grasp within organization is the lack of integration. Once you, and, and so you, you need to overcome that integration hurdle. So anyway, so part two is, is several chapters on, on the learning aspect and then part three is on doing. How do you actually apply scenario planning, environmental scanning within an organisational context? Okay, so there's three parts, searching, learning and doing. So if I can go back to the book. So the book's about embedding foresight within an organisation. What's the premise of the book? The premise of the book is that uh, the business environment, um, the operating environment for organisations, increasingly competitive, volatile and uncertain. Against that backdrop, techniques, organisational techniques for dealing with that new dynamic have, have not kept up to speed. So as a result, and so organisations are still relying on the methods that they know but no longer trust. So what are those methods? Yeah, market trends, uh, market uh, data, information, tables, graphs, etc. The traditional sources of information that we at Foster's relied on, as did, as did all of our competitors. And my point here would be that managers know and don't trust those um, techniques. But in the absence of an alternative, where do they turn? So I've tried to present that alternative here. As I said, as a result of um, inc- that um, increasingly competitive uh, volatile dynamic, organizations relying on those traditional sources have become disempowered. So how do we give back the power, give back that sense of empowerment in terms of helping organizations to get the future that they want? And um, the term rethinking strategy is all about seeing strategy not as an output, which I think you know people hear the word strategy and they tend to think about it in terms of well, what you will do. So that's the output. But if you think about strategy as a process, and it has to be a process because in a turbulent environment, no strategy is going to you know be a, a last for for too long because in a turbulent environment. So therefore. Within that turbulent environment, the onus is on the organisation to continually regenerate. So the focus then shifts from strategy as an output 
to strategy as a process. And the purpose of that process is to help you re-perceive how the future may be different and to then reconceive who we are and what we do. And that strategy is process. At the centre of that process, I believe, is scenario planning. Scenarios put our perceptions of the future at the core of planning. And that, that's, that's essentially what they do. To me, scenarios sit at the heart of that process. Why, I said before, you know, there's plenty of books on scenarios. So why is another book on scenarios necessary? And I, I mentioned before that the kind of lack of, what I perceive as a, as a lack of effectiveness, because for me, every organisation that does planning should be doing scenario planning. Okay? And that's clearly not the case. But that's the aim that I would have with this book. So how do you achieve that? And I think there's, there's a, a balance that I've tried to strike here. And that balance is how do you be totally transparent and detailed in providing the content that in, empowers the reader to then to implement this within their own organisation. So I've tried to, to give as much detailed content as I can. But then that needs to be balanced because otherwise no one's going to read your book. How I've tried to balance that is with this personal storytelling technique by telling my journey, as, I, as I've tried to mention through this interview. You know, these were the things I learned from. And the whole, if you can, if you can mesh the storytelling with the detail, then hopefully you've produced a really interesting book that engages the reader. You know, because you're using metaphors, you're using case studies, etc., that take the reader on a journey. And, and each of these case studies are personal case studies. And in doing so, you want to give as much content, as I said, that enables the reader. I think the scenario literature, in my opinion, is dominated by two kinds of books. One is the storytelling approach that gives vague hints to what to do. Okay, So as a reader, you say, well, that was a good book. But as, a, as, a, as someone who wants to implement this within their organization, you're still left scratching your head. I'm with in terms of I'm not really confident that I can actually use what this book is telling me to actually implement within an organization. That's one type of book, the storytelling but probably lacking in practical content. The other type of book, I believe, is the one that is full of practical content, but it, it, it's written in, in a kind of academic or dense manner. And so unless you're an expert already, so unless you're a practicing scenario planner, if you like, you're kind of left scratching your head because it's, it's too far advanced for you. It's written for other practitioners. So there's a gap there, and that's the gap that I'm aiming at, and that is the blending of the two. You provide the detail that enables people to implement, but you provide it in a way that engages the reader. And therefore, hopefully, that from a readership perspective, it appeals to CEOs and managers who won't necessarily be the, the drivers of the implementation, if you like, or the actual doers. But you engage them with the storytelling, whilst the doers, you're, you're engaging them not only with the detailed content, but also with the storytelling. So, so that's what I've targeted, and that's where I, I really see the gap. And, you know, I, I've, I've got plentiful books, as you probably have as well, Peter, and, and to me, uh, that's where I saw uh, the opening. And my goal here, and people write books for a number of reasons, you know, my goal is to make an impact, to get it into people's hands and for those people to then 
whether they're consulting to organisations or whether they're within organisations, to help them to integrate and embed scenarios. Or it's really embedding foresight because, as I said, it encompasses how to do environmental scanning, etc. How to go from the three... You know, it answers the three questions in the doing stage. The what's next, so what, now what. Okay, and they're the three questions I think that you always need to address to prove your ongoing relevance, but also to, to continue to make an impact uh, within an organisation. And look, hope, yeah, my goal here would be that over the next five to ten years, scenario planning um, can regain its position within organisations to become a, a, just an entrenched way in the way that organisations, and by organisations, it's businesses as well as governments, and so it just becomes a natural way that organisations, communities, governments think about uh, the future and think about whether it be innovation, strategy, whatever it may be. And I think that's one of the tools um, uh, that will help you know, society make smarter long-term decisions, that breaking down this kind of scepticism towards the long-term future, uh, breaking down people's kind of natural anxiety when it comes to, to thinking about the long-term future. So. Hopefully this um, uh, book proves a, a valuable organisational tool, but also a, a personal tool. Good. Well, thanks. I mean, I, I hope the book goes well. And thanks again for taking the time out to come and talk to FuturePod and the FuturePod listeners. So thanks, for, thanks, Steve. Pleasure. Thanks, Peter. Cheers. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.